One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello, this is Owen Bennett-Jones, back from a couple of weeks off on the lovely, uh, windy, rainy beaches of North Wales and ready to discuss this week on BBC News Hour Extra the issue of internet abuse. It clearly is a growing problem. There are various responses to it. In the UK, they've just announced a new team of police officers to deal with people who are suffering from online abuse. But then, on the other hand, in Pakistan, for example, there's a new law being proposed which would make it an offence to insult the army online. And all that is being done under the cover, if you like, of trying to protect people from online abuse. So it is a difficult subject which basically raises the issues of freedom of speech versus protection of the vulnerable. And it's quite complicated. And for some people, it really is a very live issue because they are suffering gross abuse, really horrible things being said to them every day, many times a day. And it is very draining and in many cases even worse than draining for them. So it's an important topic and we'll try and work it out. That's this week's NewsHour Extra on internet abuse. If you're not familiar with Jane Austen, she was a novelist born in 1775 who wrote some pretty astute and funny books, and who ever since her works were published has had a devoted following in the UK and around the world. And a few years ago, a feminist activist, Caroline Criado Perez, started a campaign to get Jane Austen put on a British banknote. On the face of it, a pretty standard and harmless suggestion, and the Bank of England agreed to it. But the abuse that Caroline Criado Perez attracted because of this was quite amazing. Tweets included things like, rape is the last of your worries, and and die, you worthless piece of In 2014, two people were given jail sentences for their role in that abuse. The judge said it was hard to imagine more extreme threats, and the effect, the effect on her had been life-changing. Now, in the United States, it's reckoned 22 million people are threatened with physical violence online every year. Some say it is now becoming so widespread, it's ruining the internet. So this week on NewsHour Extra, why would someone say things like that in the face of non-existent provocation? How can they be stopped? And to discuss all this, I'm joined by Jody Ginsberg, former London Bureau Chief for Reuters, now Chief Executive of Index on Censorship. We have Morton Schultz, who is coming through from Stockholm, uh, Chairman and Founder of the Law and Internet Institute in Stockholm, and as we will hear, a troll hunter, he'll tell us all about that, and Alice Marwick, Director of the McGannon Communication Research Centre and based at Fordham University, an Assistant Professor there. I've also got Keith Smirthwaite, and we're going to start with you, Kate, I should say you're a comedian and an activist. You're performing Mm -hmm. at the Edinburgh Festival just now, which happens every year Mm -hmm. and brings together a lot of, uh, well, British and international talent to perform in the city. And you've been at the receiving end of quite a lot of this harassment. And it started in 2015, I think. 
Oh, no, it started well before that. I've been uh, receiving internet abuse for, uh, I mean, getting on for a decade now. And in the first instance, you know, it was the odd message. And I I almost, you know, when you sort of get, you get a a nasty message, you almost think, my goodness, you know, wow, look at this. I'm I'm part of that world that I've heard about. And, you know, and you sort of, how am I going to deal with it? Am I going to block it? Am I going to reply? What am I going to do? And then over the, you know, the last uh, seven or eight years, the amount of abuse that I've been getting has escalated to a point now where there's no question of me being able to respond to things or deal with it or do any such thing. I block about 10 to 20 people a day off of uh, things like Twitter and stuff like this. And sometimes I report things to the police. I've had very little luck with getting the police to do anything. And I'm not talking about, you know, uh, lest anyone should think so, you know, running to the police when somebody says, you know, my face looks wonky or, you know, that they don't like my show or whatever. I'm talking about people and, uh, you know, saying things like, I'm going to rip your head off and your bleeding throat and the police going well it's very difficult to track people on some websites and you know we're just very busy and just kind of and I don't blame the police most of them would like to help and would like to do something about it but they don't really have the training and I think you know I think that the police need training first of all in knowing when to act and when not to act because you know the last thing I want is for somebody to put up a joke and end up having to go to prison for it that's ridiculous but what I do want is people who spend their lives having a campaign of aggression and sending these kind of horrific messages. When I talk to organisations like End Online Misogyny, um, which campaigns about internet abuse and supports victims, often I send them some of the worst abuse I've had and they say, oh yeah, we recognise these accounts, we recognise these individuals. So there are certainly individuals out there who are routinely doing this to, you know, to women um, and perhaps targeting other groups as well as women. I know um, uh, friends of mine who are, who are black have had incredibly racist abuse in the same way that I've had very sexist abuse. Let's say, I mean, obviously it's all a question of drawing lines, but these really grossly abusive, violent messages like the one you just described. How many of those would you get in a week? I would say I, I would say that I get one to two of those a day, but it should be said that I've blocked hundreds and hundreds of people on different social media sites, particularly people who send those kinds of messages. So that's what I get now. When I make a television appearance, um, especially if I'm talking about something to do with women's rights, um, it can peak and I can get something like 50 to 100 of those in a day. But obviously then I block all of those people over, you know, and, yeah, and, I, that, and, I, that, and that sort of fluctuates. Yeah. And what is it? I mean, obviously... It was quite wrong to use the word provoke because there's no sense in which any of this would be justified. But what is it that is leading to this? So Mm -hmm. what sort of stuff are you saying on TV that Mm -hmm. produces this response? Well, actually, it's very interesting. You know, there are certainly certain certain patterns. Like, you know, sometimes I talk about, for example, an issue like abortion, which you might think is pretty controversial and people might react to. But actually, I get very little reaction to talking about a, a subject like abortion. If I say something critical of uh, internet pornography or pornography in general, or the sex industry in general, I typically get lots of very nasty messages. You know, that's the sort of demographic of people out there who send this kind of stuff out. Okay, so we will hear more from you throughout the whole of the program Mm. but it's just important to hear this at the beginning that i mean these messages are just utterly intolerable and extraordinary and and yet it is happening to you and to others quite a lot yeah, and, and actually, you know, strangely enough, although some of these messages are absolutely horrific and frightening, and when they do things like include a part of my address or mention family members and this kind of stuff, obviously, you know, it, everything in your body tenses up and, you know, you have that absolute fear and, and it can be absolutely horrible. In actual fact, quite often what is much 
much more problematic for me is that these people go on to every video of me online, every interview I've done, every review of my work, um, even, you know, all the nice reviews, and they write underneath, this woman is awful, she's talentless, she's terrible, and they write the same thing underneath every single like internet site that they can find you know and I work in an industry where people work freelance and um, you can't make it illegal to say you don't like my work but it's quite clear that the people doing this haven't even seen my work and aren't even the least bit interested in providing an appraisal they are just trying to damage my career as much as they can and, and they're succeeding. Final, <laughs> final question to you at this stage you're, you're obviously not alone in this and yet you seem to be getting it pretty badly mm-hmm. have you any insight as to why that is? Why, why you've been, I think you have been singled out because others are affected, but why, why you are badly affected? We absolutely know why I've been particularly targeted. There are individuals out there who have deliberately put my name up on websites saying this woman is to be targeted. And there are individuals who organise this kind of thing and who are in contact and deliberately point out people uh, to encourage then big groups of individuals to go after them. And uh, so I do know lots of other women who I've been in touch with who've had a similar experience to me and we've met through that. So I I don't in in many ways feel isolated, but... Yes, there is absolutely a clear reason why I get so much, um, and it's because individuals with a lot of influence um, are encouraging it. OK, thanks very much for now. Let's just get an initial comment on what we just heard there from Alice Marwick, who, as I said, has uh, come through from Boston in the United States. Same sort of thing happening in, in America? Absolutely. A study by the Pew Internet Research Center found that about 40 percent of online adults have experienced some kind of online harassment. And that ranges from the horrific abuse that people like Kate endure to cyber stalking, violent threats, but also to name calling and other things we might not think of as quite so serious. But about 70 percent of online adults had witnessed that type of behavior. So it's quite prevalent online. Okay, And Morton Schultz in, in, in Stockholm, same with you? Yeah, pretty much the same. It seems a little bit higher even in, in the United States if you compare it with the Swedish investigations that have been made. About a third of all young people in Sweden say they have been subject of serious online abuse every year. And that that number is pretty much constant. They, they do this survey every year. It seems to be even a little bit higher in the Pew uh, investigations. And that is a point worth making, actually, uh, Morten Schultz, that young people are actually disproportionately victims of this. Is more common among little bit older than teens. Let's let's move on, and I'm going to put this to you, Jody Ginsburg from Index on Censorship, in a moment. I'd like you to listen to a tape, and we'll we'll all listen to it. It's with someone called Gregory Allen Elliott, who's Canadian. Now, it is important to say he was completely cleared legally after a trial of online harassment of two women. The judgment came in 2012, and the judge found that his tweets were not threatening, and he was cleared. But nonetheless, he has been involved in this world of, as he, the word he uses, aggressive internet messaging. And I asked him what sort of things he tweeted and what happened to him. I didn't really, I didn't really say anything horrible to them, you know. I think the worst I did was uh, tweet to someone who I didn't even know. I didn't know her physical nature. But I, I think I said her ass was fat or something. But that was another tweet uh, variation on... Uh, on people that uh, wear spanks. One of my tweets was, people wear spanks um, because they have a lying fat ass. So it's Twitter, right? You can't really know Twitter. You also described one of the women as a hateful Is that right? It may have been mine. It may not have been mine. I mean, at some point, there was two or three um, parody accounts of mine 
that where they use my face and my name. But I would definitely remember if I'd called someone a hateful <laughs> So presumably um, you Not really, because that. you can say it You can say it in jest. You can say it in response to... These people were calling my sons rapists and things. But we're not really in jest territory here, are we? Well, when someone calls your sons rapists, and, you, you know, and they all, they're all pile, dogpiling, they call it. It just seems a very unpleasant world where everyone's insulting each other. And, and obviously there are people who, who really are badly affected by this, and it, it does really lead to uh, you know, their suffering. So, so what, how do you reflect on this nasty world which you seem to be you know, partly inhabiting? Well, I, again, this is a, a perception. Someone says, okay, it's a nasty world. Well, that's your perception. That's your opinion. You have a right to that. But you don't have a right to now enforce what other people interact with the world and how they interact and how they perceive it. This whole concept of political correctness, and it's okay. Go ahead and be politically correct, but don't start enforcing your opinions, which is political correctness is an opinion. When you inflict that in a, in a legal fashion on other people that have a right to say, I'm going to be obnoxious on the Internet, and the Internet's designed where you can ignore me, or you can block me, or you can unfollow me. You have to have the right to speak your mind. You have to have the right to offend others, because truthfully, the offense is theirs taken. I'm not giving offense. They take offense. And I have a different perspective than most people. What I'm doing is interacting in an aggressive fashion with politicians that are either spinning or outright lying, and they don't like it. So would you call yourself a troll? Everyone online is a troll. You're sitting in your house watching the rest of the world. You're minding other people's business as soon as you go online. And, and as soon as you say something, you're offering it to the world. Troll is not a, a, a horrible thing to be called because, in my opinion, everyone, as soon as you interact online with someone you don't know, you and the other person are trolls. One last question to you. I mean, you're, 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 you're speaking in a very mild-mannered way. You've said that your tweets are aggressive. Do you think that there is a way in which the Internet encourages some kind of loss of restraint and that if you were dealing with people one-to-one you know, in, in, a par, in a bar or in, a, in the street or whatever, you just wouldn't say these things? You know what, if someone approached me, uh, a random stranger on the street, and called my sons rapists, or it, it really, the, the whole concept of, there's a lot of people that are trying to pull online, trying to have a parallel of online life to real life. Real life is completely different than online life. When people start saying, oh, the internet is my workspace, therefore workspace rules have to apply to the internet, that's just someone trying to control how other people interact on the internet. It's insidious because what they are trying to do is crush free speech of others. We have rules. We have in-real-life rules. If you make a threat online, get arrested. Go to jail. If you do anything that, that is truly against the law, go to jail. But when you start trying to change laws to silence political opinion and, and commentary, that's when it gets really nasty. And in my case, that's exactly what they were trying to do. And that was uh, Gregory Allen Elliott there. Well, let's uh, get the view on that of uh, Jody Ginsburg from Index on Censorship. He, he raises the argument that you might expect him to, the free speech argument. Uh, is it sufficient? Absolutely. I think we have to be forceful about this in saying that people have the right to offend. They have the right to insult others. There have been 
numerous cases, certainly in the UK and in Europe, that have reinforced that, that the protections that exist for free speech include the right to say things that shock, offend, disturb. And it's really important that we keep making this distinction because what's concerning is the elision that's happening between material that's offensive and upsets people because it's offensive and material that genuinely falls into the category of harassment or threats. And Kate made this point right at the outset. There is a difference between systematic attacks on people where you publish their addresses, you threaten to kill them, you publish pictures of them with stakes through their heart and say, I'm coming to kill you, bitch, and I know where you live, and that happens day in, day out from the same accounts, and simply calling someone a hateful or saying that they have a fat ass. So you're, you're, you're saying the, 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 in the first case that would cross a line for you and free speech would be trumped by the threat? There are certain cases in which repeated use of language ceases to be protected speech, and that's the case in the UK as it is in the US. So the problem that we get is the online world sorry, is often treated as a kind of special case scenario where we have to have new laws and special laws and extra laws and special provisions rather than using some of existing legislation that we have to deal with things. And I agree again with Kate. What we see again and again is a failure of the, the police and law enforcement to deal with cases that quite manifestly fall into criminal activity. So Kate Smirthwaite, you know, the, the, mm. the case is being made that laws are there and that free speech must be respected in many cases, but when, when it goes too far, the law is, is there. Well, I absolutely think that one thing, you know, that the police need training, and they, they need training in two things, and one is knowing when to act and when not to act, and when to go, OK, this is unpleasant, but, you know, it's not illegal, and when to go, hold on, we have to act on this. They don't need a new law, I, don't, I agree that they don't need a new law. They need training in how to uh, identify people online and how to track people down and that kind of stuff. It's exactly the sort of thing that I find, you know, incredibly difficult to do, but the average teenager can do in about 10 minutes... And, um, you know, one thing that would be really useful is for the police to have, you know, a specialist unit that does it because, you know, tracking somebody down on, on Twitter the first time one tries to do it undoubtedly takes months and the second time probably takes about 20 minutes. You know, and in, in terms of the free speech issue, you know, I mean, I'm a huge supporter of free speech, but I also think, you know, that organisations like, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Google, you know, they have the freedom to run their platforms how they want. Now, you know, for example, on Facebook, if you don't like something, there isn't a dislike button. You can express various emotions dislike isn't there. You know, that's up to them. That's not inhibiting my free speech to tell people I don't like things. That's actually the way that they choose to run their platform. And I think that there are ways that these organisations can run their platform, for example, making it easier to report people, making it easier to block people. And I think we can make big improvements in that respect that will encourage respectful behaviour, you know, without having to sort of, you know, go to the police every time somebody says, you know, you've got a funny-shaped bottom or whatever it is that that guy was determined to do. We're going to discuss uh, remedies in the second half of the programme. But Morton Schultz, let's just go to you. First of all, we seem to have some consensus, really, that if existing laws were applied, that that would deal with at least a lot of this, if not all of all of it. Just tell us a bit about your troll hunting. It's a TV show you do in Sweden, right? We did it for, for two years. And the idea of the show was to basically find the people that used uh, especially Twitter and, and Facebook to harass people and for online abuse. And what the show was about was that the uh, reporters, they 
looked up these uh, people and they interviewed them and they they tried to get them on tape. And in some cases, the program also helped uh, the victims to sue the perpetrators in in a civil procedure. Yeah, well, that's right, because there there is the criminal law we've been talking about. And there's also the possibility of using civil law to say, you know, you have offended me in some way and I I should have redress, isn't there? Yeah. In Sweden, those two systems of responsibility are closely connected. In, in, in the UK, not as much. But just want to put in one more question, if you look at it from a little bit of, of a legal perspective, since I'm a, I'm a lawyer, that freedom of speech is not the only right, if you address this from a human rights perspective. I mean, the right to respect for one's private and family life, to use the European Convention's uh, expression. I mean, those are also basic human rights, and they're not inferior to freedom of speech. So it's not just harassment. There are other aspects of this as well. I mean, defamation, libel, and things like that. So the, the interest of freedom of speech needs to be balanced against several other interests and not just cases of harassment. I think in many countries, m- one might need to look further into the rules that govern what the police can do uh, and also what the what authorities can do in general. So, uh, for instance, on how the, how the authorities can monitor electronic communication, for instance. But uh, as, as far as the material rules are concerned, I think in most countries, the rules are by and large sufficient. But just, but for, okay, just before we go to Alice, okay, well, first of all, Jodie Ginsburg. I think Morton's not, not wrong, but I think there is an issue in terms of balancing rights, is that increasingly what we see is that people feel that they have a right not to be offended. So they think that along with those other rights, such as privacy, there is a basic right that, that people can't insult you, they can't say hurtful things. And we have to yeah. be really vigilant about reinforcing the importance of freedom of expression as a right and being very clear with people, including the police, but also individuals, that simply because somebody says something that you don't like is not a reason to be able to call in the police and certainly not a reason to be able to take them to court. And we've had a number of cases, certainly in the UK recently, where people have said things that are clearly jokes, hugely offensive, but jokes nonetheless to a very small group of people. The nature of the internet is such that those then get shared thousands and thousands of times to a community way beyond the original intended audience and then find themselves jailed for for eight weeks, 12 weeks for having done so. And yet perpetrators of crimes, of harassments and so Sorry, on. Sorry, that's a big claim. So who's been jailed for telling a joke? For example, we had um, Jake Newsom, who was jailed for six weeks for making a, a really distasteful remark about Anne Maguire, the teacher that was stabbed in Leeds. Similarly, Robert Riley was jailed for eight weeks for making similar comments about, you know, how he'd wished that, you know, other teachers okay, would be stabbed. Okay. Well, let, let, let me stop you there, and, and let's let's bring in okay. Alice Marwick on this because that case uh, you mentioned about the teacher, basically, this man, uh, a, a pupil killed a teacher in England, and this 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 guy tweeted uh, that he approved of the killing and said, I wish he'd on her too. You can't defend that as a free speech issue, can you? Yeah, I think he was making a throwaway remark that was intended for a small group of his Facebook friends that it might be offensive, but he's not causing harm to a community. He's saying something that's Hugely offensive, absolutely okay. massively tasteful, but we shouldn't be, we should not be putting people in jail simply for causing. No, that, that, that helps to establish a position. Alice Marwick, what do you think of that? Well, I think the US and UK contexts are really different here. I think we need to make a distinction between remarks that are generally offensive and remarks that are specifically targeted towards certain people. The types of harassment that we've been talking about on this program are those that are targeted towards people. They're not just generally offensive statements that 
anyone might see and, you know, be concerned with. It's things like cyber stalking, repeatedly harassing people across platforms, um, doxing, which is unmasking someone's Mm -hmm. pseudonym or revealing personal information about them, their credit card number, their social security number, their home address. And in the U.S., we even have swatting, which is the... Oh, we have that in the UK too, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Good to know. Um, It's making... Well, sorry to hear that. But it's when you make a, the the perpetrator makes a falsified emergency call where they report that there's a hostage situation or there's some sort of serious crime. And they the police then sends a SWAT team, which goes into somebody's house with, you know, guns blazing the full nine yards um, to scare the victim. Um, and those are those are not simply offensive remarks. I think that in the U- in the U.S., cyber harassment laws have to be written very very narrowly to avoid our strong First Amendment protections. So they have to focus on things like obscenity, what what is called true threats, which have to have some sort of believability. They There has to be some sense that the threat is realistic. OK, thank, th- thanks. We will take a break now to remind you, you can uh, get in touch with us, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. And you can subscribe to the podcast. It's one edition every week. Just search for BBC NewsHour Extra on your podcast app. On NewsHour Extra this week, we have uh, Jodie Ginsberg, Chief Executive of Index on Censorship, an organisation that champions freedom of expression. In Sweden, we've got uh, Morten Schultz, Professor and uh, Troll Hunter. He says uh, he stopped doing that a couple of years ago, but very active on these issues in Sweden. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, Alice Marwick of Fordham University, and in Edinburgh, where uh, NewsHour Extra will be headed next week, we've got Kate Smirthwaite, comedian and activist who has faced a lot of online harassment. Now, we just wanted to uh, understand how this differs around the world. And I wonder who can uh, kick us off with that. Has anyone got any insight as to whether this is a particular thing in the Western world, whether there are different cultures that take different approaches to this? Does anyone have any views on that? Well, I think it's kind of a global thing because I know that one of the the real issues I have is I get some horrific message and we just don't know whether it's come from somebody who lives at the other end of my road or whether it's come from somebody in America, in the Middle East, somebody in South America, somebody... And they could be anywhere. We have no idea. And I think that's one of the reasons why the police do find it so difficult to do anything in a lot of cases is that what are you supposed to do when somebody, you know, in in the other side of the world is sending threats and this kind of stuff? And actually, people can do a lot of damage from the other side of the world. You know, SWAT attacks and doxing are absolutely doable from other jurisdictions. And then you've got yes, the problem of multiple legal... Big legal issues, yes, I can see that. ...situations but, yeah. going on. That's, that's, that was Kate Smirthwaite. Alice Marwick, have you got views on, on how this differs around the world? Well, I think it's it's quite contextual, but I agree with Kate that jurisdiction ends up being a major issue here in being able to not only prosecute these cases, but being able to find out who the perpetrators are at all, because they may be hiding behind pseudonyms. The internet is, to a certain extent, borderless. People use services, you know, a service that may be located in the EU or the US is used by people all around the world. But certainly it's a very human impulse to get angry and call names. So I would be very surprised if there was an area of the world in which this problem is not experienced to a certain extent. And it's also one that um, where we've seen state-sponsored uh, online trolling, this right? Is Jody Ginsburg. We, we know that Russia uh, and China, for example, are actively engaged in deluging 
the online space with targeted messages, messages to discredit opponents and so on. So it's not simply just, I think, as sometimes it's portrayed, people sitting in their house in their pyjamas late at night eating pizza. It's also something that governments engage in as well. Yeah, let's hear about China because there are many, many internet users there and they have a so-called human flesh search engine. And this is when users club together to identify and then humiliate people who are accused of something like corruption or quite minor things, graffiti maybe. Uh, With some reflections on that, here's BBC China Services' Vincent Nye. China has over 700 million internet users, and although the Chinese internet is famously regulated by the government's Great Firewall and does not have Facebook or Twitter, it is not to say that social media and online engagement is any less dynamic. Social media site Weibo has 120 million active users per day, and the chat app WeChat has 700 million monthly users. Authorities in China have far greater powers to block or censure websites and online material they deem to be politically and socially offensive. However, regulating the behavior of other offensive users online often falls to a very different mechanism. User groups together in mass vigilante-style hunts to attack individuals who have caused offense, earning the phenomenon the title of the human flesh search engine. Over the years, human flesh search has contributed to revelations of cat abusers, adulterers, as well as snarling a number of innocent victims. For those innocent targets of human flesh search engine in China, the damage to their reputation and the violation of privacy can have devastating effects. Some in China call it cyber violence. So you might wonder why not everybody in China is against this online practice. Well, a few years ago, a local official was caught wearing a designer watch far more expensive than he could afford on his official salary. Human flesh search engine found his background and personal information along with other wrongdoings that have not been reported by local media. Shortly after, the official, whom netizens called Watch Uncle, was dismissed. And nowadays, public officials have to think twice before they make lavish purchases. There we are. That was uh, Vincent Nye. So what do you think, Morton Schultz, when you hear about things like that? It, it's, all, it's sort of verging on vigilante, vigilante action, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I mean, <clears throat> I, I've changed my own position on this. Uh, maybe five or seven years ago, maybe even ten years ago, when I started working with this, I thought that public shaming could actually do some good when it came to hunting down trolls and, and make them stop. I'm, I'm much more against it now uh, because it, it always or often at least comes with a backlash. But um, it, it is something like a human instinct to like point fingers at people doing bad stuff and get other people to do it as well. There's a nice book on this by John Ronson, I think his name was, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which really balances the different uh, things going on here. That uh, So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm ambivalent. <laughs> so, J- Jody Ginsburg, when you, when you, you know, hear of these sort of campaigns, uh, it, it, which obviously could be on false information. There was always that risk that the person isn't corrupt or didn't do the graffiti or whatever. Uh, does that fall within your free speech concern? I think what we would be concerned about is the use of mass collective action in either direction to silence others. Um, and one of the interesting things about 
um, the way in which some of the successes that have come in, in dealing with um, online trolls is is the use of counter-speech and collective counter-speech. So that can move into shaming, but simply calling someone out and saying this is unacceptable or this is or your facts are wrong can be an effective mechanism to tackle an individual or a group. It can also, as we heard in that, that excerpt, move into um, wrong-headed approaches where you end up tackling the wrong people or, in fact, where you end up taking on exactly the same mechanisms and using the same mechanisms of the trolls yeah. themselves. Yeah. So there's a very interesting study from, from Demos that was done last year yeah. on counter-speech that shows some of the, the much less successful counter-speech just simply does exactly what the trolls do, which is throw insults at people and hurl abuse. Yeah, well, I guess what I'm asking you is, uh, uh, yeah, all agreed so far, but should the human flesh engine, search engine, yeah, this sort of phenomenon of groups getting together to attack someone, are you OK with that? I'm I'm okay with people getting together to criticise others. Absolutely, right. But you, I mean, the, the difficulty with this is, it seems to me, with a lot of your arguments, is that there have been cases of people actually committing suicide because of their you know, the amount of abuse they've received, and it could be just insults, you know, uh, not threats, not incitement, not breaking laws. But this well, is where we get into the. This is where we get back to, as I talked about in in uh, my initial comments where something amounts to harassment. So we've right. got to be sensible about looking at this and saying, if you are day on a daily basis being ripped apart by people on the internet, they're threatening you, they're, they're verbally abusing you, that on a continuous basis and a consistent basis amounts to harassment and ought to be dealt with in that way. The unfortunate problem is, is that often we're not catching some of those issues early enough, but what we're doing is grabbing the low-hanging fruit, which is the stuff that is is merely offensive. Okay, I'm going to move this on. And Alice Mm. Marwick, perhaps you can help us do that with uh, what the internet companies could do. Uh, We've talked about the law and and how far that should go. But there are also sort of technological solutions to this. First of all, the, the, the early idea was that the internet companies, the social media platforms, should monitor and delete offensive comments but it seems to me that's totally impossible because there are there are hundreds of millions of them well certainly scale is a major issue in dealing with this there's sort of two ways to tackle this you can have some sort of automated solution that automatically bans people or blocks people or deletes tweets based on language but that's very difficult because language is totally contextual you know i could be using a slang term or a slur with a friend that would not be taken negatively, or I could be targeting somebody with that same word in a very negative way, and the automated solution isn't going to be able to tell the difference between those two solutions. The other way of dealing with it is having human moderation, which not only is incredibly difficult because of scale, because of the, as you point out, the sheer number of tweets or pictures or Facebook posts, It's also expensive, not just financially, but also the human cost. People who do this type of online moderation see quite horrible things day in and day out, pictures, videos, and language, and they are very susceptible to burnout or secondary trauma from this type of moderation. However, there are plenty of small communities on the internet that are very well moderated, And I think that a lot of tech companies have really passed the buck and refused to do anything or been very slow in acting on things. If you look at Twitter, which is frequently criticized for its lack of action on these issues, 
in the last week, they removed millions of tweets or thousands of tweets that had video footage of the Olympics or were using the Olympic intellectual property in ways that the Olympic Committee didn't like. And they were able to do that automatically, very quickly. And if they can do that kind of response, then they should be able to do similar responses to people who are harassing other people. Well, there should be a way to really? detect that type of really? I mean, yeah, yeah, That's a very good point. Yeah. Well, is it? Because surely you can do a search on Olympics and see if there are videos by, by some sort of search you know, coding. But it, you know, that's different from dealing with the issue. You, you just made the point, uh, Alice, that it's extremely difficult to work out whether, what, what's meant by the language in a, in a, in a text. And it would take minutes to do each one. And there are, and there are hundreds of millions of these every day. But, no, I think there are... Sorry to jump in, but I think there are there are ways in which this can be dealt with much more effectively than it currently is. Like at the moment, if somebody is sending me threats or, or abusive messages of some sort um, on Twitter, it, you know, it, it's about a five step process to, you know, report that there's a problem and report this to Twitter and blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, how about having a situation in which it's much easier to just flag up? Oh, you know, just have a little flag that says this. You know, this seems like abuse, and perhaps live in a world where, where actually, if that, if what, if an account has had, you know, one or two people have tapped, this looks, this looks not okay. Then whatever Twitter doesn't look at it. But when an account gets to a point where a hundred people, two hundred people have clicked the "there's a problem with this account" button, then it, you know, automatically gets forwarded, and then you're in a situation where you're not reviewing every single time. You know, somebody doesn't seem to have liked something and they've pressed the button, but you are reviewing when there seems to be a pattern of behaviour that's occurring that's built up and then you're in a position to say well let's now we can not just and then if somebody is reporting to the police rather than just sending them that one message that they are scared by you can send them all 100 messages that this account has sent that other people have flagged up and then the police have got not just one message to look at but 100 messages to go hold on is this a pattern is this actually harassment rather than you know somebody being a bit drunk and getting a bit overexcited and saying something that by the cold light of morning they probably regret saying or is this an account that sits around day in and day out and routinely targets individuals and sends them abusive messages. And I think there are definitely ways in which internet companies can make that process easier and more straightforward to engage with because, you know, one of the reasons people often say to me, oh, you must report if it's a death threat, you must report. Well, you, I mean, there just isn't time. It takes way too long. Um, I, I can I only think... report the, you know, the most pressing and, and, and imminent threats. I think, I think Alice's point about scale is absolutely key, though. This, I mean... this is Jodie Ginsburg. Something like, I don't know, it's probably gone up, but something like 500 hours worth of video uploaded to YouTube every minute. It is absolutely impossible to, to sift all of that, even with automation. And partly because studies have been done about this, you know, even if you try to get bots to sift it, the, the bots need to be coded by humans, humans who disagree about what constitutes harassment, what constitutes the kind of speech that ought to be automatically removed or ought, ought to be automatically flagged. So it's incredibly difficult. And what, hap- what I think the tendency is, and you see this, I think, but potentially with the new group in the Met, is that... Let me uh, just explain, this, I did mention this, this is the police in the UK have got, I think it's five full-time officers now who are now going to be devoted to this issue of online abuse. Yeah. Is that they'll, they'll somehow be able to magically sift for much, much more content. And, and the idea that we're going to be able with human beings to sift through all of that and actually find the cases that we ought to be dealing with, I think, is wildly optimistic. OK, but the, the sifting, let me bring in uh, Morton Schultz here, because the sifting, which does seem difficult, but uh, there's also the point Kate's making, that there will be reporting on this. And, and there are sort of uh, new new ideas coming out about this. There's a, there's a system being used by Periscope, which is a jury system. And when, when people report 
abuse. Uh, a jury uh, is constituted, randomly selected Periscope users who can then take a view on whether someone should be blocked for an hour for a longer period. Does that, does that sort of, do you think that works? Well, this is very difficult. I think all the internet companies could do more, and I think you need a combination of of an automated search thing and and people actually looking at it. And then when people actually look at it, the th- the question is, what are they supposed to look for? They they can either look for things that violate the terms of agreements, but they can also look for everything that's illegal. And sometimes uh, things can be illegal without being in conflict with terms of agreement, because the terms of agreement may not cover everything that is illegal, because legality is not just a question of criminal law, what, what's forbidden. It's also a question of civil law. It's also a question of, of other things. So there are many, many different issues here. Maybe that could be one, one step forward. Uh, I don't think that would at all solve the massive problem we have of online abuse, and especially not in the more serious types of cases we have been talking about here not but it might might be a step forward yeah perhaps i mean i'm i'm pretty impressed what facebook is doing uh, at their dublin office uh, i mean we know that that facebook is uh, there's a lot of online hatred and abuse there but they 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 do have a process and they they work with it and it can be approved improved but uh, yeah uh, alice marwick what about the point that twitter has a particular problem because because it you know it is not like the other social media platforms, it doesn't allow a closed group. You know, it's just open to everyone. And that does change the nature of the platform and increases the scale of the problem. And the, the, the way out of this, maybe just to have closed groups. Well, Twitter has a binary model of privacy. You either have all your tweets are private or all your tweets are public. And there's no way to target tweets to a group or make certain tweets private or anything like that. It's, it's all or nothing. But I think this is a very hard problem to solve. I am sympathetic to the free speech argument. I think it's important for people to be able to speak online and contribute to the public discourse. But I think if entire groups of people are being dissuaded from doing that, that is an issue. Ultimately, I don't think this is going to be solved by a single tech company. And I don't think it's going to be solved by a single law or a single group of police or a single group of activists. I think it's going to be, it's a socio-technical problem. So it's going to have to be solved by technical means, by legal means, by social norms, um, by a, a variety of these things working together. So I think Twitter by itself certainly could do more, but I think that they're not going to be able to solve this problem themselves. Yeah. It's going to have to be a combination of factors and forces that go into solving online harassment. Okay. I, I think I should at this point say that we did ask Twitter for to contribute to this, and they, they have gave us a statement which they say can be attributed to our senior director of public policy. Uh, and this is the statement. We know many people believe we've not done enough. We agree. Uh, We are continuing to invest heavily in improving our tools and enforcement systems to better allow us to identify and take faster action on abuse. And we'll provide more details on those changes very soon. And as always, we encourage users who are the victim of abuse to report uh, report it and use our features that we've already got. So, so, Kate, it does seem that, you know, Twitter are, you know, it's a promise at this point, but they're saying that they sort of acknowledge the problem. 
Yeah, I mean, the latest I've heard from Twitter is, is along the same lines, is that they, they've kind of identified that it's a problem and they're moving uh, it, to do something about it. I wait to see what they do and whether it's effective um, and, uh, and whether they're, they're sort of continually improving or whether it's a question of, of a sort of a sticking plaster. But it is certainly the case that, um, that very little of the abuse I get, not none, but very little of it is on Facebook. Um, a lot more of it is on Twitter. A lot more than that, actually, is on YouTube. And, of course, there are a lot of other uh, platforms out there that really, you know, where really things can get very nasty, things like Reddit and 4chan and these other websites that are absolutely known to be um, places where where all this kind of stuff, you know, where, where trolls, if you want to call them that, I, I tend not to, but, um, but can congregate and can make plans and can do this kind of uh, dogpiling, can, can organise this kind of dogpiling. And, it, you know, it's, it's difficult because on the one hand, we kind of want to talk to the big platforms and get them to sort it out. And on the other hand, we know that, that, that other platforms can pop up suddenly and very quickly and the internet doesn't quite have that, that it's not controllable in the way that one might, you know, want it to be or imagine that it could be. It's, it's a very wild and loose thing. And recently... Um, OK, you know, let, let, let's bring in Jodie Ginsburg here. So I think it's really important um, to remember in this debate that, that ultimately Twitter and Facebook are private companies that set their own terms of service um, and can set them however they want. We treat them as if they were public spaces and public spheres because it's also public and open, but they are. And so when you enter Twitter, you know and understand that it is this binary um, community that has a kind of terms of service. So the issue, therefore, for me, is much more about is it applying the terms of service fairly and equally? And actually, groups like Facebook and Twitter, for me, the major challenge is they are often not doing so. So certain groups end up getting silenced by accident or default because they suddenly take a knee-jerk reaction, decide that actually they don't like this particular person and they have to be banned. Um, Facebook, for example, there, there is an issue at the moment in terms of hate speech where we're finding, for example, people who are critical of Islam are then being reported to Facebook by Islamic fundamentalists, people are calling them cyber jihadis, for hate speech and being told that they can't use the platform or having their own posts taken down when all they're doing is engaging in what we would hope happens on the internet and elsewhere is robust free speech. So, Professor, we're back to the same issue. It's balancing free speech and protection of the vulnerable. That is the basis of all this, uh, the whole discussion, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And, 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 and Alice Marwick, that's, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's quite difficult to know how to resolve that. I mean, what we've been told at the beginning of the programme is that existing laws do successfully achieve that. But what we're really hearing from Kate and I think others is that in this new world, it, it, it isn't actually uh, functioning properly anyway. And, you know, it's, it's not really happening. No, I mean, if you are being harassed online and you call your local police and you say there are people on Twitter who are sending me death threats and rape threats, what we've heard from many people is that frequently the police are going to say something like, oh, just stop using Twitter. You know, it's as easy as that. And because the local police often lack the resources to go after all of these different abusive messages. Sometimes they lack technical knowledge. And certainly, as we've pointed out multiple times in this program, there are issues of jurisdiction. If you can't get the local police to listen to you, then you can't 
use existing laws against which the is, people who which, are yeah, harassing you I'm, online. And Kate Smithwick, that's what you found, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, there are a number of things that need to happen. One is that we need to get the police to actually act to deal with these abusive things. Secondly, we need to get them social media platforms. And I think that you're right, this is not a legal thing. This is about people who use these platforms turning around and saying, we want things to be better and all this kind of stuff. But I also think that it's about societal attitudes, that when we live in a world in which women are disproportionately targeted and people from uh, minority ethnic backgrounds are disproportionately targeted and disabled people are targeted and gay and lesbian people are targeted, we, we're in a world where, hold on a minute, we want the world to be fair for people. But if I write a comment and get a thousand angry responses and a guy writes the same comment and gets a couple of thumbs up and nothing else, it's not a fair world. And that's actually, it's not something that we can deal with legally. It's something that we have to address through looking at attitudes in society and why are these attitudes so prevalent. Let's uh, look ahead. Just, can I just add one thing from a yep. legal perspective? That yep. I think what we, I think that civil responsibility law is underused. I think what we, I, I would like to see a grassroots movement where people actually start suing each other when laws have been violated. It could be laws of torts. It could be criminal law. And I think that is the way forward. Private law enforcement, which could be boosted by, for instance, I'm, I'm producing an app which would help people to sue each other, like an insta trial kind of app. And I think, uh, I think this is the way forward. The people need to be able to use the legal tools themselves because we will never get the police to solve these billions. So, so Professor, uh, you, you, would like, you would like Kate to sue her insulters? In, in the best of worlds, I would like Kate to be able to sell all the claims she has against abusers to a company that will do it for her. Oh, I'm, I think that I'm sounds. There. I think that sounds hugely dangerous. I'm just envisaging in a world in which we're all busy suing each other for insulting one another. I think. Look, I think yeah, one, but, of but, thing, oh, one of the things. Hang on, Kate. Oh, one of the but, things. But, but Kate, it's not hang about on, insults. It's no, not no. about insults. But, but it, I mean, often, I'm such an advocate of free speech. I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, to have somebody from Index on Censorship in this discussion strikes me as wrong because nothing I'm asking for or have ever asked for would constitute censorship. It's about stopping overt harassment and you know it's do you know what i mean it's about people who are breaking the law and and, and who are harassing people and bullying people and and then so sending all the threats so and all this kind of stuff the, so let's better educate the law enforcement let's better use the law we certainly don't need to enter into Even a situation where we're, we're having private world. prosecutions because for many people it isn't simply about the, the online <laughs> threats it's about it's about it's about getting incensed because somebody said something insulting you need to be a we need to be using the law much much more effectively through the mechanisms that we have rather than simply unleashing everybody to sue one another the thing that i really want to talk but that about is the mechanisms but the, we have. the thing okay, no, no, let's just uh, professor schultz make his point and then you can come back Jody. I'm not advocating for anything new. I, I want people to use the tools they already have, and they've had it for thousands of years in different versions. I want people to be able to have the, the power to use the tools that law is already given them. The, the, the tools are a little bit different in the UK, in the US, and Sweden, but by and large, they are the same. That if yeah. someone injures you or harms you, you can sue them. Okay, so you're just talking about making it easier to use the law. Alice Marwick, you've heard this quite lively uh, discussion. What, what, what are your comments, and how do, you, how do you judge the various contributions you're hearing? Well, I think that one of the things that I've enjoyed about this conversation is that we haven't been sensationalizing the Internet's role. And we've really been looking at some of the underlying causes of this type of behavior. There, Historically, there's sort of a cycle of moral panics around new forms of technology. And often there's very 
poor legislation that's passed in a sort of knee-jerk reaction to trying to change some sort of online behavior. And the legislation is often written by people who don't really understand the technology or don't understand the nuances and the complications. So I'm sympathetic to many points of view in this discussion, but I do agree with Kate that I think we need to look at some of the underlying causes. And when we look at the patterns of harassment, And if harassment is being utilized disproportionately against women, specifically women of color, sexual minorities, et cetera, then I think we need to look at why that is happening rather than just simply looking at the Internet as the problem. Okay, well, thank you very much for that very sort of moderate remark at the end, which helps us bring this to a conclusion. So thank you very much indeed to you, Alice Marwick, also to Professor Morton Schultz, Jodie Ginsberg and Kate Smurthwaite. And if you want to hear the programme again or hear any from our archive, we've been going for over a year now, so there are many uh, of these quite substantial debates online, bbcworldservice.com forward slash newshour extra. If you want to uh, get in touch with us, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. But for now, that's it. Thanks very much to all our contributors uh, and to you for listening from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London. Goodbye.